Hello, and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Janardan Ganari and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, The Theory of Evolution, Ishvara Krishna's Samkhya Karika. We've now come far enough in our examination of Indian philosophy to ask a pivotal question. What would the Muppets make of it? Like the Indian thinkers themselves, different Muppets would probably have differing opinions. Miss Piggy, famously outraged by the mere mention of words like bacon and pork chop, would admire the Jaina ban on nonviolence towards animals. The self-abnegating Scooter is practically a Buddhist already. Sam the Eagle would no doubt endorse the strict political line taken in Kautilya's Atashastra, while the Swedish chef might feel kinship with the Sutra texts, since you usually can't tell what the heck they are saying either. Over on Sesame Street, we can guess at the favorite Indian tradition of the Count, or to give him his full name, Count von Count, the Muppet vampire who has taught generations of children basic arithmetic. He would want to get his teeth into Samkhya, the tradition whose name literally means counting or enumeration. It's a name no less appropriate than that of the number-loving count. Samkhya too loves numbers, and offers a whole system of itemizing lists. These catalog, among other things, the 25 principles that constitute the self and the cosmos, the eight tendencies that guide human behavior within the cosmos, and the 50 types of result for humans, ranging from five basic misunderstandings of the world to nine kinds of contentment. The lists are mentioned, though usually not spelled out in full detail, in the oldest surviving treatise of the school, namely the Samkhya Karika, ascribed to Ishvara Krishna. It's thought that he lived between 350 and 450 AD. This sounds very ancient, and it is, but like some other supposed founding fathers we've seen in other Indian traditions, Ishvara Krishna was himself heir to an even more ancient tradition. In fact, you can make a case that Samkhya is the oldest of the Vedic schools, especially if you add the caveat that it existed long before being a school. At the end of the Samkhya Karika, Ishvara Krishna is revealed to be a fairly late entry in the list of Samkhya thinkers. The real founder, here called simply the Great Sage, is identified by ancient commentators as Kapila. He was followed by two more teachers by the names of Asuri and Panchashika, with Ishvara Krishna coming some unspecified number of generations later. Whatever the accuracy of this lineage, there's no doubt that Samkhya reaches back far into the past. Its characteristic ideas have been traced back to the earliest Vedas, and there are passages in the Upanishads and the Mahabharata that have unmistakable similarities to the teaching of Ishvara Krishna. The enumeration of principles is anticipated already in the Chandogya Upanishad, and the historical figures we just mentioned pop up in earlier texts as when the Mahabharata describes how Panchashika defeated 100 other sages in debate. As will be seen, Samkhya develops in concert with the tradition of yoga, which provides a kind of practical complement to Samkhya's enumerative system-mongering. This link, too, figures in the earlier texts. 
The Mahabharata says that yoga and Sankhya share a single teaching, though we also read there that different teachers identify themselves as followers of one or the other school. It would seem that in the Sankhya Karika, Ishvara Krishna too was reaching into the past, retrenching to a more conservative presentation of the system to challenge more recent innovations. As so often, our oldest text ushers us into the middle of an ongoing conversation. We shouldn't assume that Ishvara Krishna's ideas are definitive of Samkhya just because it is his work that has survived and not those of his rivals. On the other hand, Ishvara Krishna's ideas did come to dominate the conversation as it continued on from his time. We have another opportunity to do some counting here, since there are no fewer than eight early commentaries on the Samkhya Karika. Two of them are by authors with familiar names, Gaudapada and Patanjali. The latter is not to be confused with the grammarian Patanjali, who wrote the most authoritative commentary on Panini, but it's possible that the Gaudapada who commented on the Samkhya Karika is the same as the Vedantin who anticipated Shankara's ideas. What is certain is that Shankara himself really had it in for Samkhya. As we mentioned in our episode on him, he sternly criticized the whole approach taken by Ishvara Krishna and his heirs, taking exception to their cosmology, their conception of the self, and their epistemology. As Count von Count might say, the reason is as clear as the difference between one and two. Shankara's version of Vedanta is called Advaita, or non-dual, because he sees the distinction between Brahman and all other things as illusory. For him, there is only one principle, and this principle is the only thing that is real. Samkhya, by contrast, is dualist. The Bert and Ernie of the Samkhya system, two very different characters that together form a close partnership, are called Purusha and Prakriti. We've met the word Purusha at least once before, back in episode 3, when we were discussing the cosmology of the Rig Veda. You might recall hearing how the gods cut up Purusha in a world-forming sacrifice, fashioning its limbs into the different groups of Indian society. There, Purusha seemed to be something like an originary human, complete with body. In the Samkhya Karika, though, Purusha means something far more abstract, it is that which witnesses all, yet remains inactive. This description suggests that we are talking about pure consciousness, the subject underlying all objects of awareness. Of course, that is a thoroughly Upanishadic idea, which is here being used as a foundation for the whole Samkhya system. Thus far, the Vedantins could agree but they would have to reject the next move made by Samkhya, which is to identify pure consciousness as only one of two fundamental principles. You'll see the name of the other principle, Prakriti, translated as nature or primordial matter. It is the principle of things in a somewhat more familiar sense, that which gives rise to all other things by undergoing a complex step-by-step -step process of transformation. As it does so, Purusha remains inactive, maintaining an unending silent vigil as it observes the development of Prakriti. So this is not dualism as we may think of it from other traditions like Gnosticism. Samkhya does share the idea of two independent principles, neither of which is the cause of the other, 
but we don't have God acting on matter here or a good principle coming into conflict with a counterbalancing source of evil. Rather, nature, or prakriti, spontaneously turns itself into all things, while consciousness, or purusha, just bears witness. Yet, there is a role for purusha in explaining the phenomena that result. Ishvara Krishna says that though prakriti is productive, it is also unintelligent. Without purusha, there could be no awareness within the products of nature. The two principles are thus compared to a blind man cooperating with a lame man. Nature is blind, since on its own, it would lack the consciousness that is the core of mental life. Consciousness is lame, since without nature, it would remain inert. So far, we've only managed to count up to two. We have a lot of work to do if we're going to get up to 25 principles. The remaining 23 are, of course, not as fundamental as Purusha and Prakriti. They are in fact going to be the phenomena that emerge from Prakriti as it undergoes what Ishvara Krishna calls modification. In scholarly literature on Samkhya, these 23 results are sometimes called the evolutes, which sounds more like a 1950s singing group than anything else, but the term makes sense since they evolve out of Prakriti in a gradual stepwise process. In defense of his evolutionary theory, Ishvara Krishna appeals to the idea that effects pre-exist in their causes. The same assumption appeared in Vedanta, as when Shankara argued that all things are virtually present in Brahman, as pots are already somehow in the clay from which they will be made. This makes a certain amount of sense. It shows how pots do not just emerge from complete non-being when they are made, and also why you can produce only certain things using a given material. You can put a chicken in every pot, but you can't make a chicken out of a pot, though one must admit that it would be a great act for the amazing Gonzo to try on the Muppet Show. Before we go on to talk about the effects that are produced out of Prakriti, let's look a bit more closely at this principle and the forces that cause it to change into them. Actually, taking a closer look at Prakriti will be difficult. The Sankhya Karika speaks of it as unmanifest, and says that it is too subtle for us to perceive. Though it contains all other things implicitly, in itself, it is actually none of these things. As a result, we cannot grasp it directly, but only as a kind of postulate or hypothesis. Fortunately, Ishvara Krishna has the resources to justify this maneuver. He touches briefly on a theme we'll be exploring in much greater depth when we get to the Nyaya school, the sources of knowledge. In Samkhya, there are three such sources, namely direct perception, inference, and valid testimony. With the case of the underlying nature that is Prakriti, it's inference that comes into play. We infer that it must be real without being able to grasp it directly on the basis that there must be a single principle to explain how there is order and limit in things. As for the mechanism of change, this is one of the most intriguing yet elusive aspects of Ishvara Krishna's presentation of Samkhya. He speaks of three gunas, which literally means cords or threads. So, staying at the level of metaphor, we might think of a rope made of three intertwined strands. At a more philosophical level, the gunas are the functional modes by which nature transforms. In other words, they are interacting tendencies that are inherent in prakriti. The three gunas are called sattva, rajas, and tamas. 
We've already seen some words in this episode that are hard to translate, but like the Cookie Monster, these really take the cake. They go back deep into the literary history of Vedic culture. Originally, they might have alluded to sun, sky, and earth, which come together to make it possible to grow food. They are also associated with white, red, and black, perhaps an evocation of some traditional color scheme for clothing. Here in the Sankhya Karika, though, they are the three forces of change responsible for the evolution of things from Prakriti. The first of the three gunas is Sattva, and is connected to lightness and pleasure. The second, Rajas, has to do with change and the upheaval that causes suffering. The third is Tamas, which is heavy, and has to do with resistance and despondency. So, we have a striking combination of cosmological and psychological traits associated with each of the three gunas, which is going to be a hallmark of the whole Samkhya system. Within the cosmos, we are told, there are different realms dominated by the three different forces. This apparently is meant to explain the difference between the divine heavenly realm, humanity, and animals and plants, so that the gunas govern all things, from Brahma down to a blade of grass, as Ishvara Krishna puts it. Psychologically, sattva was historically linked to liberation, and here in the Samkhya Karika, we are told that individual selves may be dominated by sattva or by tamas, that is, they may live wisely or not. But in both the cosmos and the person, the really central point is that the three gunas operate together dynamically, somehow causing each stage of the evolution to proceed from the last. The metaphor of the rope may be of help here, if we imagine nature extending strands out from itself and developing in ever-increasing complexity. Or, we may look back to the Mahabharata, which already spoke of how the gunas are created in regular order and dissolve in reverse order like the waves of the sea. Not to be outdone, Ishvara Krishna offers his own analogy comparing the three forces to a lamp. The commentators helpfully explain that he means the oil, fire, and wick that together allow for illumination. Given that Prakriti is often understood in material terms, it may be tempting to understand all this as a purely physical process. But a look at the first results that emerge from the activity of the gunas throws some doubt on this. The immediate product of Prakriti is called Buddhi, also called the Great One. It is the first thing that is manifest, so that we can have some direct grasp of it. Yet again, one can argue about the translation of Buddhi. A typical rendering would be intellect, since we are apparently dealing with a kind of impersonal, undirected thought or striving to create further stages. Next, our emerging subject acquires a sense of its own identity, in a stage literally called eye-making. So here we're apparently talking about self-awareness, the ability to take a first-person view on things. Only at the next stage does Ishvara Krishna introduce mind, which is responsible for actual thinking and perceiving. Collectively, these three powers, buddhi, eye-making, and mind, are called the interior organ, as opposed to the external organs of sense. Just as we said, the cosmic dualism of Samkhya is not like that of Gnosticism, so here, we should note that Ishvara Krishna's dualism is not the same as we find in, say, Plato or Descartes, where a mental principle is contrasted to a physical principle. Admittedly, one of the two principles of Samkhya is pure consciousness, which might remind us of the Cartesian mind, 
but all other aspects of mental life are placed squarely on the side of the other principle, prakriti. The capacities needed for thinking are even the first things to be generated, though we should bear in mind the caveat that none of these capacities could be aware at all if not for the lurking presence of consciousness in the form of prakriti's unoriginated partner, purusha. We're still only up to five items, these two fundamental principles plus the three aspects of the interior organ. But now things get going more quickly. The mind generates the five sense faculties, vision, hearing, and so on, plus five anatomical powers to match, like speaking and moving. Having now added the exterior organ, we seem to have a well-rounded person who has a mental life, the capacity for sensation, and further abilities for interacting with the world. The catch is that there isn't really a world yet, only a person. So, these 15 principles have to be complemented by the five sensible features of the world, which generate five bodily elements, the four that would be familiar in Greek philosophy, air, earth, fire, and water, plus something called akasha, which might mean empty space or some kind of ether that pervades the universe. If you watched a lot of Sesame Street as a child and are used to counting along, you can see that this finally gets us up to 25. Obviously, there are a lot of philosophical issues one could raise here, but we will follow the example of Ishvara Krishna and pass over most of them. We do want to mention two things, one a point of relative detail and one a more general puzzle. The detail has to do with those sensible features generated towards the end of the evolutionary process. They are presented very generically. It seems that we're talking about the whole phenomena of taste, smell, sound, and so on, not particular flavors, scents, or noises. Supposedly, the generic sensibles actually give rise to the elements and particular qualities like a given color can only come about once we have these physical elements and the compounds made from them. Some authors, including our new favorite philosophizing grammarian, Bhatrihari, claim that for Samkhya, everyday bodies are actually made of sensible qualities. If this were right, then there would be nothing more to a pot than its color, hardness, the metallic sound made when it falls on the Swedish chef's head, and so on. But it seems likely that in the earlier tradition, represented by Ishvara Krishna, the qualities were assumed to belong to an underlying subject. This subject is, of course, Prakriti, the quasi-material principle that has ultimately transformed itself into the things of everyday experience. As for the broader puzzle, we've already mentioned it, the rather disconcerting way that the 25 principles cut across the cosmological and human realms. These principles take in sensation and the sensible, the mental and the material, the private and the public. Does this really make sense? In the initial stages of the evolution, we have a description of human psychological powers. Before long, though, these powers are somehow acting like a record executive in the disco era and producing earth, wind, and fire. One suspicion might be that the physical aspects of the evolution are really just a kind of illusion, a kind of show that the mind puts on for itself when it is bound to nature. In fact, a passage late in the Samkhya Karika says that the phenomenal world is like a dance watched by the audience that is Purusha. This reading could head in a direction taken by some later commentators who came after Shankara. They sought to reconcile Samkhya with Advaita Vedanta's skeptical approach to the phenomenal world. 
but there might be other reasons that the world out there is so closely connected with the world of the mind. We know that Vedic literature frequently compared the cosmos with an individual animal, person, or god. The theory of the threefold gunas lends support to this boundary-crossing idea. The same forces that yield a person's mind and body also give rise to a physical universe. And in fact, there are major obstacles to any reconciliation between Sankhya and Vedanta. Not only does Sankhya embrace two fundamental principles where Vedanta has only one, it also resists the Vedantic notion that there is ultimately only one true self, namely Brahman. The fact that there are different courses of life and experiences proves, says Ishvara Krishna, that Purusha itself is many. Apparently, you have one pure consciousness and I have another. Yet there is a point of deep agreement between these two Vedic schools as well. Both are convinced that knowledge of their teachings will bring liberation. In the very first sentence of the Samkhya Karika, we are told that the purpose of the teaching to come is the escape from suffering. And supposedly, the early Samkhya thinker, Panchashika, held this out as a prospect for all comers, and not just the priestly caste. A knower of the 25 principles, he said, in whatever order of life he may be, and whether he wears braided hair, a top knot only, or is shaven, is liberated from existence. But why would counting up to 25 principles, or going through the other enumerative lists offered by Samkhya, help us to achieve this goal? One might suspect that Ishvara Krishna is just trying to keep up with the Buddhists, who built their whole teaching around the pervasiveness of suffering and the path that leads to escape. But Samkhya also is, from its very foundations, built to pursue the goal of liberation. Postulating the Purusha does address the philosophy of mind by making pure consciousness prior to all experience, but Ishvara Krishna also insists that without Purusha there can be no liberation. Only a pure, contentless consciousness can stand outside the turmoil and suffering of the world that emerges from Prakriti. Consciousness can declare itself satisfied, now that it has seen the evolved world, while nature can be satisfied at having shown itself and been seen. So now we know what we have to give up if we want to be liberated. Everything. We must let go of all physical action, all sensation, all mental activity, even any sense of individual self, saying, I do not exist, nothing is mine, I am not. This is what it means to identify with the passive witness that is Purusha. Ishvara Krishna calls this an escape from ignorance. Ignorance is not the reason why the world evolved from Prakriti. That was a spontaneous, natural process. Ignorance is, instead, what keeps us bound to the world once it has evolved. This bondage is unnecessary because we can just choose to cast ourselves in the role of audience instead of performer. To take oneself to be Purusha is to be liberated, simply because Purusha stands outside the evolutionary process. It was never unfree. Of course, this is asking a lot. We'd be happy for you to keep seeing yourself as something more modest, the audience of this podcast. It will be well worth doing so for the next episode, which will look at ancient Indian medicine, which has close connections to both Samkhya and its partner tradition, yoga. You can, of course, count on hearing some medical puns of the sort that featured regularly in the veterinarian's hospital sketch from The Muppet Show. So tune in next week when you'll hear Nurse Piggy say, 
Dr. Bob, how can you stand to wait until the next episode of your favorite podcast? And Dr. Bob reply, easy, I have lots of patience. That's right here with the continuing story of the history of philosophy in India. I like-